head into the Ringerverse to stay up to date with all things superheroes and nerd culture entertainment. Hosted by a rotating lineup of superfans at the Ringer, including Mallory Rubin and Van Lathan, shows will provide instant reactions to blockbuster releases, insightful backstories on canon, and mind-bending theories, as well as fresh takes on the latest news and rumors. Check out the Ringerverse on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is presented by Walmart Plus. Walmart Plus is the membership that helps you save on things you expect, plus the things you don't, like free delivery from your store with no markups, gas savings, and even a free Paramount Plus subscription. Start your free 30-day trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus essential plan only, separate registration required, $35 order minimum. See walmart.com slash plus for details. Nathan, we've got to start using Apple Cash. Uh, okay. Why? It's so easy and convenient. Apple Cash lives in messages where you and I text all the time. We do. All right. So I can pay you in the convos we're already having, like I do when I bribe you to say nice things about my favorite Taylor Swift songs. You'll never forget a payment or have the money just sitting somewhere collecting dust. You do owe me money from the last time we saw those Taylor and Travis picks, so that is nice. (laughs) And once I've done that, you can use that cash right away. You can buy stuff at a store with Apple Pay. So I don't have to do all the bank transfer stuff then? Nope. It's just right there. It's easy, convenient, and secure. Wait, did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? See how easy that was? Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. Hey guys, it's Nora, and I'm so psyched to get to our Reputation episode. But if this episode just popped up in your feed, that means it's probably Thursday, March 25th. And just yesterday, we learned that Taylor's going to be releasing a new song tonight at midnight. What we know so far is that it's called You All Over Me. It's going to be part of the Fearless re-release on April 9th, and it's a song from The Vault, meaning that we've never heard it before. It also features Maren Morris on background vocals, and I'm so excited to hear it. Once we have, Nathan and I are going to hop back on this feed on Friday for an emergency pod, breaking it all down. So if you're excited to talk about that song, that's where we're going to do that. So hop back on Ringer Dish wherever you get your podcasts on Friday, and we'll take you through it. When she fell, she fell apart. Cracked her bones on the pavement she once decorated as a child with sidewalk chalk. When she crashed, her clothes disintegrated and blew away with the winds that took all of her fair weather friends. Hello and welcome to Every Single Album Taylor Swift. I'm Nora Princiati. I'm a staff writer at The Ringer, and I am joined by Nathan Hubbard to talk about Taylor's sixth album, Reputation. And we just came from the triumph and the glamour and the glitter of 1989. And now we are on to something that is much darker and angrier, although we will see that we don't totally stay in that place. But everything that we heard first off of this album comes from that darkness, comes from that embattled place for Taylor that she'd been in. And that sets the tone. And she looks us all in the face, or maybe she's looking at someone in particular, and she says, look what you made me do. So, Nathan, what exactly is it that she did? She made a drunk office holiday party for an album. I went to see her perform at the iHeart Music (laughs) show. Right after this came out, and she did like a six song set list. And all I kept looking at was Paul Sadati, who is her guitar player. And he was a backup dancer in that show. 
like he literally, he just was going, but he was just trying to sell it. But you could tell he was like, is a robot going to take my job? And Paul Sadati is the guy at the drunk holiday office party who everybody knows the robot's going to take his job, but nobody has the heart to tell him. Taylor is the drunk boss who gives some like cringy speeches in the beginning to fire everyone up. And by the end of the night, she has her arm around everybody telling them that she loves them. There's guests here that nobody knows who brought them. It's like, who the fuck brought Future? Ed Sheeran was here last year. He didn't really bring that much to the table. Who brought him back? Jack Antonoff is the new guy that nobody has enough trust yet, but who comes in way too hard in the beginning with, look what you made me do. The whole thing, but like if you stick around long enough, by midway through it, it's just the people that you actually like. And you go home at the end of the night and you're like, that was weird as hell, but it was really fun. So before this metaphor becomes increasingly unruly, let's stick at the beginning of the party, right? Because in theory, she could have just chopped off the beginning of the party, but she didn't. The first song that we hear from this album is Look What You Made Me Do. The song she did with Jack Antonoff. Why did we do this? Well, I asked you, you tell me. I have no idea. I'm never going to understand it. Somebody in the Swift universe is going to have to explain it to us. I, I, you know, the glass half full story or explanation of her single choices is that they, you know, we talked about this before, they're palate refreshing and they sort of cleanse the palate. And maybe this was just, if she had gone dark, this, this is the first time in her career that she took more than two years to release an album. We know she completely disappeared for a year after the Kanye drama, in Kanye and Kim drama in July of 2016. So she's been totally gone. She wipes her social accounts. She shows us some like glitchy, crazy video of a snake and then bang, this is what we get. And it does set a mood. It does set a tone. And I think that when they sat back and said, how do we, she had decided she was not going to do any press leading up to this that she was going to let reputation speak for itself. And this must have been the decision for how they were going to get the most attention. It is just as read that fourth track, I Knew You Were Trouble, we get that dubstep drop at the start of the chorus. This is like an all-time what-the-fuck-is-happening moment. How did you react when you heard this? So Taylor thinks of this album as telling a story from start to finish, right? And the ultimate question of reputation is, does the start diminish the ultimate impact of what happens at the end? Like, did did it hurt us in being able to appreciate what comes later because of that hard, hard reset that she gives us on that song? It hurt me deeply. (laughs) Very wounded. We're in a very wounded, difficult place, just as she was. And I'm torn because I do like those later songs on this album better. But Taylor has talked about how this was the first time in her career where she felt like an album wasn't understood until she performed it live, until she toured it. Mm. And there is something very theatrical and interesting about the journey that she takes us on, even if the starting place of it is super, super uncomfortable. Yeah, it it took me a while to understand that she's playing a character in this album. She's parodying the media's perspective of who and what she is. This music is dark. It's industrial. It's quasi-goth. Like you said, it's angry. She's embattled and she's fighting. 
at the beginning. I mean, this is like a all-time old guy reference, but it is reminiscent of when you two almost broke up. They went away, then they come back and they do Octung Baby, and Bono is playing this character with the slick back hair and the leather jacket and the sunglasses, and you didn't really get it. I mean, the album ultimately grew on people and became an all-timer, but you didn't really understand it until you saw it live. And I think you're exactly right. I mean, we know Taylor is a person of checklists. And when she made this album, if you're going to throw darts at it, it feels like she published her checklist a little bit. I need a couple of stadium openers. I need to put a ballad on track five, even if it doesn't totally fit. I need to throw one out to the core fans, you know, with a piano thing. And so you can sort of feel the checklist. But the back half of this album is gorgeous and has some of my most, like, top five Taylor Swift songs on the back of this. But the front part of it, it took me months to get into this album because I was so turned off by the front part of this record. I think a lot of people have that experience. I like having an album grow on you. That's because in some ways it should be an easy, easy question, right? This is a screw up. It's a screw up to put, look what you made me do first. If they'd chosen getaway car or something that's just a lot more accessible, sounds a lot better to your ear on, on first listen, then maybe this album has a greater lifespan, performs better commercially than it would have. However, I don't think that's as like, that's not that easy. Right. Because it wouldn't have grown on us in the same way if that's what we'd heard first. So I don't think it's a slam dunk. I respect this thing as a piece of art and something that she had to do. It had to happen. And again, in hindsight, we're always smarter about these albums once we understand what she was going through and how it fits into the narrative arc. And if you think about it from start to finish, it starts as angry and aggressive and aggro as it possibly could And, you know, it finishes like March, which is the month that we're in. It goes out like a lamb on that sort of beautiful New Year's Day piano ballad, which is which is sort of foretelling of what's to come. So there is a journey through this. But it really, to me, even today, feels like two albums. If they shuffled a few tracks here and there, this is two albums. And I might have understood it better at the time if it had been sort of more explicitly those two chapters. All right, so do it for me. Split the baby here. Where? How do you do an A-side, B-side on Reputation? I, I think the obvious switch, I like This Is Why We Can't Have Nice Things. It was fun live, but it fits where Delicate is. This is where the checklist, like Delicate is gorgeous. I love it. It's our introduction to Joe, but it's out of place. And if you swap it with This Is Why We Can't Have Nice Things, then suddenly the ellipses in Ready For It start this dark chapter and the ellipses at the end of So It Goes finish that dark chapter. And I actually think she probably did that purposefully. I like that idea, but we can't be letting this is why we can't have nice things be track five. Well, so then move Don't Blame Me into track five or I did something bad into track five. Or maybe we shouldn't force Taylor to force herself to put a song fifth when, you know, this album might have called for splitting into two. But I think if you if you start with Ready For It and you go through So It Goes with This Is Why We Can't Have Nice Things Instead of Delicate, then you've got sort of this sort of aggro, gothy, dark 
borrowing a bunch of hip-hop, R&B, pop sounds that are happening in the moment. Don't forget, best-selling albums of 2017, the top 10, Taylor's the only woman. You got a lot of Ed Sheeran, Weekend, Drake, Post Malone, Bruno Mars stuff happening. So, and we can hear a lot of those influences in this album. But then the back half of this album just becomes this home run after home run of these beautiful songs. I know Gorgeous is a little controversial. How do you feel about Gorgeous? You're so gorgeous. I don't really like it oh. very much. I was actually very excited for you to explain to me what you what you love about this song. I think some of the lyrics are funny. I like the cats thing, but yeah. I'm just not really willing to give the woman who wrote You Call Me Up Again just to break me like a promise a pass for rhyming face with face. Yeah, okay. But there's a lot of that on this album from a macro level. Like she's using a lot of easy outs lyrically. There's a lot of traditional pop talking about bodies and touching. And some of that I think is intentional. Like this is the sexiest album that she's made in good ways and sometimes bad ways. Because sometimes it, it she takes the easy out lyrically. But Gorgeous to me feels like a fever breaking and it's just sort of this like oasis of fun through the slog of the first part of the album which is so hard to get through not because listen there's some awesome moments in a few of those songs i like i did something bad i just like it comes after endgame i need four songs to forget what happened on endgame but gorgeous feels like this sort of breaking of the fever and then bam you're in getaway car which is one of my favorite all-time Taylor songs. The next, you know, three or four songs are these sort of beautiful, using the vocoder, like, voice stuff. There's a whole lot of, you know, intimacy through those songs. This is why we can't have nice things is there today. But if that's gone, then boom, you're done. And you land on Call It What You Want To, which to me is, like, just an all-time intimate, attitude-dropped, vulnerable, this-is-who-she-is-in-the-moment song. that just is almost shocking for for the intimacy of it the character that we've heard for all of these songs is gone and it's just taylor as she is today to new year's day and and then we're out the door so that's how i would have split it i would have just swapped those two things maybe change the album title to some you know, two-word, like, dark light equivalent. And I think I, I would have understood it better. But guess what? She didn't make this album for me. What would you right. have done? Well, I love the idea of using Getaway Car kind of as the transition. Like, it's so perfect for it, Ugh. right? You're hopping into the Getaway Car after the dark yeah. period. Let's get the fuck out of here. into this happiness. Just to tie up a a few loose ends, and then we'll start breaking this down into categories because I think we're going to touch on a lot of stuff that way with this one. But gorgeous. Yeah, you're breaking the fever, but it still has a lot of the bravado on it. That's actually what I like about it is that it still has that like you should take it as a compliment. I love that line, though. Totally. But that is the bravado of the early part of this this record. And I, I think there's actually more interplay between side A and side B, let's call it, than it feels like at first glance. And that's something that as hmm. I've sat with this for longer and longer, I've grown to appreciate 
The other thing about that and where mixing some of these tracks that are tonally different up in the sequencing of it, it's not my favorite way she's ever structured an album, but where I start to see it a little bit more is that to your point about using a lot of those hip hop influences, using, you know, the sort of tropical house chorus on Ready For It or the trap beat on Delicate, she is in the thick of it and in the fray with both other musicians in terms of her personal life and the Kanye stuff and battling it out in public. She's also doing that in the music. She is engaging with contemporary sounds in a way that she has not in prior albums. I mean, 1989, we had that whole discussion about whether it's an 80s album. And we both came down on the side of it that it's a little bit less than it was made out to be. But guess what? Nobody was calling that a 2010s album in any sort of definitional way. So she's in the thick of the fray and lashing out in a way that she never has been before. And some of the messiness of that is effective. I think some of it, she doesn't pick the right battles all the time. And this was a complicated time and a time when she made some mistakes, definitely. But the whole thing, when you can have a little space from it, is a very, very, very interesting journey. And we've talked a little bit about, look what you made me do being the starting point for that already. I have no choice but to make it my biggest song from this album. It is. Because it's a number one. It is. It's a number one song. And what we can't square, Nora, is this becomes basically her worst selling album to date. But it is her best selling tour. In fact, this tour becomes the highest grossing tour in North American history. Okay. She started at Fearless. She was playing to 10,000 people a show. Speak Now, she goes to almost 15,000. Red, 20,000. 1989, 27,000 a show. Reputation, she plays only 53 shows. She grosses almost $350 million and plays to 55,000 people per show. She is a huge touring act. And yet the album just didn't sell. One explanation is, of course, we're in the doldrums or coming out of the doldrums of the music disruption period where the transition from physical to digital is happening and people just aren't buying as many album copies anymore. And so, you know, she is a a victim of that to a certain extent. But let's not forget, she withheld this album from streaming services for a short period of time after it gets released in November in service of ensuring that this thing is going to not only debut at number one, but that it's going to sell over a million copies. That is a figure that she and her camp have been fixated on since Fearless came out and since Speak Now came out and since she started doing these huge first week numbers. And that's an example of a battle. You talked about battles that she maybe doesn't need to pick. That's one where that felt more like a decision to post a score or a number than to necessarily do what was best for the album. At the end of the day, this doesn't stay at number one for particularly long. Other albums all had more staying power. This one fizzled out a bit. And you just have to look and say, was this the single's fault? Did it turn off not the core fan base, which gets into everything that she puts out, but did it turn off those people on the fringe from buying the album, but not from coming to see the tour? 
is this a good song? Is Look What You Made Me Do a good song? We have to establish this up front. No, I'm Too Sexy by Right Said Fred, which is what they interpolated for this song, <laughs> is a good song. I'm too sexy for my shirt. Too sexy for my shirt. So sexy it hurts. This song is not good. Look what you made me do. Look what you made me do. Look what you just made me do. Look what you just made me I think it is her worst chosen lead single. I think it is the lead single that does the the greatest disservice to the album as a whole. You like the song? To be honest with you, I like the song. Oh, I mean, <laughs> I it's didn't so it... fun. It's so campy. I know, like, but it, it is a it is musical theater level of camp. Yeah, but just starring in your bad dreams is the most fun thing to just yell. Like, uh, I like it. I'm sorry. I wow. Like it. Okay, listen, live your life, Nora. I support you. I, I, this started as a poem. And yeah. I personally feel like it could have stayed a poem only because I think it like, you know, a little peeing in the pool of what otherwise for me, there's so much brilliance on this album. It just, it, it was like a crazy distraction, a red herring from the genius that lies within. And uh, of course, I'm sure there was purpose to that. And I'm sure, again, the, the the words that she used in this booklet, you know, she said, my mistakes have been used against me. My heartbreaks have been used as entertainment. My songwriting has been trivialized as oversharing. When this album comes out, gossip blogs will scour the lyrics for the men they can attribute to each song. And listen to this, as if the inspiration for music is as simple and basic as a paternity test. So her point on this is we think we know someone, but the truth is that we only know the version of them that they have chosen to show us. Well, that's what she did with this song. And maybe the joke's on me in that, you know, I'm running down and overanalyzing it. She just made a choice here to try this. And it's my problem, not hers. Well, the most interesting reading of this song is that the you in Look What You Made Me Do is actually not Kanye. But it was very much taken to mean Kim Kardashian and Kanye West when it was initially released. No, they're going to get theirs. Well, and that is because of, she goes dark on social media. And then two days later, after she clears her accounts, she does that little glitchy 10 second video with the snake. And the snake image was what she had been branded with and was getting all over the place on social media after the summer before. Taylor Swift is over party happened after Kim posted the video. Edited video. No, was edited. The edited video. Okay, now what if later in the song, I was also to have said, uh, I made her famous. Is that a... Uh, is, is, so did you say that? Yes, it might have happened. Oh, <laughs> the edited video of the conversation that she and Kanye had about the song famous where she didn't hear the that bitch line and was you know notionally supportive of it but as soon as the song came out was very upset made the speech when she won album of the year for 1989 at the grammys saying that people would try to take credit for women's fame which the line is i made that bitch famous for all my South Side niggas that know me best, I feel like me and Taylor might still have sex. Why? I made that bitch famous. God damn. I made that bitch famous. Why did people believe a fake reality star? 
Like, history doesn't look very kindly on that at all. Mm, it doesn't, it doesn't, right? Because it, it doesn't now because we know that it was fake. But I think one of the tough things about this for her is that she was playing against people more comfortable in a game that gets messy and ugly, which is public celebrity <laughs> fights. I Right? Yes. Like, one of the most instructive moments Ugh. to this whole controversy I think goes all the way back to the 2010 VMAs, which is the VMAs ceremony after Kanye upstages her. Right, where she plays innocent. She plays innocent in the middle of that show and it is like magnanimous, I forgive you gesture. And right at that point, Taylor's looking pretty good. She's looking like the bigger person. Yeah. And then at the end of the show, Kanye gets up and burns the house down with Runaway. And there is an undeniable advantage in being the person who is able to say, let's have a toast for the douchebags. Because then what do you say about him when he's already said it about himself, when it's part of the package? Like, the package of Taylor Swift can be damaged by not being kind or generous or whatever, and that's totally unfair. But Kim and Kanye were kind of bulletproof in that. Like, oh, what, they're involved in drama? Yeah, that's the whole point. But you know what's unfair? What's unfair is to put somebody in a corner who has been forgiving and, to your point, magnanimous in how she's responded to your douchebaggery and to put her in a corner and ask her in the moment, put her on the spot to approve a song where he says he's having sex with you. Like, it's not fair. Like, what is she going to do? She's tried to be the bigger person here. Like, asking, you know, uh, in this case, she was a victim. She was. And to go back to that person and say, will you let me do something that might cross the line or not. Like, it's just a completely unfair place to be. And edited or not, in both situations, it was shitty to put her in that position because it forces her. It's like, is it okay if I hit you? Well, she said it's okay, so therefore it's okay. It's just classic abusive behavior. I think you're absolutely right about that. And also, all we need to point at is the fact that the tapes were edited, right? If you're in the right and you're good with everything that went down, you don't need to edit the tapes. But you used the word victim, which is really important to this I know, conversation. And it's tinged in a whole bunch of ways, but I, it, it's warranted in that situation. And you know who else used it, though, was Kim, because she then goes and does a GQ story and she goes in on Taylor. Like a lot of this is not coming from Kanye. Yeah. Or if it's coming from Kanye, it's being filtered through Kim. Right. But she says that Taylor knew all about the lyric and blah, 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 which we know is not true, but she said it in the profile. And then she says that even knowing that in your Grammy speech, you completely dissed my husband just to play the victim again. Right. And again, that word is representative of how that incident had become this vector for a conversation about racial dynamics because there was something that felt like here is an angry black man ruining a pretty white girl's moment and everybody's piling on him 
because of it. And maybe, maybe this person that this happened to, sure, it wasn't fun, but are we recognizing her full power in this? Is she as helpless as maybe we're painting her out to be? And I have trouble with that in terms of the actual moment that happened, Mm -hmm. but there was a tone that the conversation that resulted from it took on that I think had some of those elements. I think that's fair. It did. And it is. And it accelerated when she won Grammy in 2009 over Beyonce Grammy in 2016 ceremony over Kendrick. And there is, you know, the underlying threads that we saw even this week at the Grammys of a bunch of white artists being recognized when the world feels pretty strongly, not the world, but a lot of people feel pretty strongly that black artists are being ignored and not given the voice and the recognition that they deserve. And rightly or wrongly, she gets in the crosshairs of some of this. Well, and so as she's in the crosshairs of it and she's fighting through a lot of this and working through a lot of this, it is as important, I think, to recognize that while this battle with Kanye and Kim is taking up a lot of oxygen, there are some battles that she was also not fighting. Namely, she was not politically engaged at this point. Right. And we know now that that's something that she regrets, but this album comes out a year and two days after the 2016 election. And people were dying for her to speak up and she didn't. And not only did she not, it was the post. She was using her energy and we've had years at this point to understand how sharp and effective her blade can be when it is pointed in the right direction. She's using her energy, at least at first, to fight celebrity battles. And even though I like Look What You Made Me Do as a song in some ways, I think it it it's just fun. It serves a purpose, at least for me as a listener. It felt a little bit like, did anyone really make you do this, one? Hmm. Do we really care that you did? There's a lot going on right now. Don't know if you've noticed. Mm-hmm. And what if this is just kind of a waste of time? Like, it it was a tough moment to present to the world. Here is my new album. It is about how pissed I am at Kim Kardashian and Kanye West. Right. And that is why the idea that the you in that song, it might not just be them. It might might be this sort of structural lens through which she's been analyzed and criticized often unfairly is more interesting to me in hindsight. But I think that as much as the just jarring way that song sounds did a disservice to the rest of the album. In hindsight, this reminds me a little bit of Red in that Taylor in some moments is kind of like Elsa in Frozen. She's got these huge powers, (laughs) but they can be super destructive. Like she almost can road rage every now and then and just like lash out. And she's so powerful that everything freezes and everybody's like, what the hell was that? You know, her emotions, like, she can create this fire. It's a creative mess, but there's genius in there. Like, she's like that inflatable snake that she took out on tour in in Reputation. Karen, right? She's like Karen. She's just flapping about. The original Karen. Yeah, if it gets windy, it's it's just a menace. It's going to start taking out spectators. It doesn't quite suit her, you know. Um, 
but but it's it's a coping mechanism for her. Like she is a human being and a way that she processes feelings and trauma and whatever's going on inside that brain is she puts these things into songs. And you know, for better or worse on this album she puts them out for us. I think to your point as a broad set of listeners, not everybody, everybody I think could sign up to defend Taylor who loved her, but not everybody wanted to sign up for this battle. And that's important because that ended up obscuring some of the more real and substantive battles that she actually was fighting. Like this is a time when Taylor doesn't always pick the right adversaries, but in some cases she did some really substantial and meaningful things with the power that she had as a person. And one of them was that in August, of 2017, that's when she goes to trial for the sexual assault case because she, as we talked about, had been groped by a DJ in Denver during the Red Tour in 2013. And a couple years later, he sued her because he'd lost his job and he sued her for millions of dollars. She countersued him for $1, just as a symbolic gesture. And she had to spend a week in the trial. Her mom was there. Her security was there. They're all going through it. And that was a really, I think, powerful and and meaningful moment for her. Yeah, she released a statement after she won, saying, I acknowledge the privilege that I benefit from in life in society and in my ability to shoulder the enormous cost of defending myself in a trial like this. My hope is to help those whose voices should also be heard. She goes on to say she's going to make a donation to multiple organizations that help sexual assault victims defend themselves. So this is a very big moment and a very big statement with a purpose that felt like a battle worthy of the platform that she had. I mean, really, really worthy of the platform that she had because she was... And there's no, there is no right way to be on the stand in one of those situations when somebody's been assaulted and is just basically trying to get through the day. Like that should be the bar. But she was absolutely nails in that situation. She was so direct and she was so confident. And she the just, transcript like, is incredible. It's unbelievable. There is one moment where the guy's lawyer, the DJ's lawyer, who's just badgering her and badgering her mom, and just by all accounts that were reported was just kind of a jerk. And he asked her why in the photo of the incident, because there was a photo taken from the the front, he asks her why the front of her skirt appears undisturbed. And she just shoots back because my ass is located in the back of my body. Don't bring that weak shit to Taylor Swift on the stand. Which is just sometimes you're reminded that this person's ability to communicate exactly what she needs to say is sometimes just there's no one better. And that, look, again, like that's not the standard. It wouldn't have mattered. It wouldn't have made it any less meaningful or, you know, significant or wouldn't have been like good for her, bad for her, whatever, if she'd gotten up there and she'd been mush, like that would have been totally justified. That's an incredibly stressful situation. And that's, that's not so much the point, but look, you wonder in, in situations like that, like, what'll I say? What'll I do? Will I stand up for myself in the moment? 
will I be able to articulate why something is wrong or will I sort of be doubly victimized, not just by what happened, but by the gaslighting that people do to minimize the experiences that women have in this area. And she just had no time for any of it. And to have someone in Taylor Swift's position who so many young women idolize and young men too, by the way, like this, this cuts both ways, but it was really, if you were paying attention and you knew this story and you read those quotes and you could see through the lines of all of the drama and all the other stuff that was going on that didn't matter this much. I felt that it was really, really, really powerful. Like it, it meant a lot to me in August of 2017 for Taylor Swift to go and and do that and do that so sharply and with just such a clear sense of self, I think is exactly what everybody would sort of aspire to be and hope to be in in that moment. And she really did it. Well, so then she ends up on the cover of Time in the Me Too issue. And not everybody has a positive reaction. What was that about? Right. Yeah. Well, so this is where it gets complicated. And some of it, I think, is because some of the other more trivial celebrity battles kind of obscured what's she fighting for? What does she care about? But some of it was also, it is fair to sort of have a critical lens on her here. She was one of the people of the year in the what was called the Silence Breakers issue. She was on the cover with Ashley Judd, who was one of Harvey Weinstein's original accusers an agriculture worker named Isabel Pascal and a woman named Susan Fowler, who, who'd been an engineer at Uber, all of whom had had really significant sexual assault or harassment issues that they'd spoken up about. Taylor is interviewed for the magazine and she gets through either because of a pre-negotiation with the reporter or by happenstance which seems a little bit unlikely, she gets through the entire interview without mentioning the president of the United States. And this is the same time when, you know, she tweeted about the Women's March and kind of tried to do it vaguely without exactly saying what had prompted it. And she tweeted a a picture of of herself going to vote, but without endorsing a candidate, right? Right. She just said, go vote. And her lawyers had sent letters trying to stop bloggers from sort of acknowledging and blogging about the fact that there were literal white supremacist groups holding her up as one of their symbols. And that's in some ways like horrible that that happened to her. She must have hated that. Yeah. But it turned into this thing where the ACLU is getting involved and saying like, no Taylor Swift people can't shut down this like small independent blogger, by the way, whose blog nobody ever would have seen if they hadn't drawn all that attention to it. We punched down there. Yeah. Right. And it was complicated to figure out how she was figuring out which of these battles to fight because there was, look, there was a Vox headline, is Taylor Swift a silence breaker, the case for and against her place on the cover. There was a Daily Beast headline, Taylor Swift is no silence breaker. And it was getting pretty obvious that she was staying out of the political arena while simultaneously having her own very real, very significant experience with something that was a lightning rod politically at the time and 
trying to figure out where she stood with all of that and what she was willing to comment on, I think got got messy and complicated and legitimately even, you know, I as a huge fan of hers, hard to figure out where she stood and concerning in moments. And some of that right is is unfair because when she is taking the stand, like she doesn't deserve to be processed in that moment as a celebrity who owes us anything. Like, yeah, Michael Jordan, she's she just trying to sell shoes, but she had a much richer experience with this, didn't she? Right, and she just needed, like the only person she owed anything to in that moment was herself. Right. And if we lived in a nicer world, it would be easier to separate those things. But they got really muddled. And they got muddled because of her lack of a voice politically, which we know that she regrets now because we've seen the Miss Americana doc where she talked about it and and talked about regretting not speaking up in 2016, but not being able to do anything about it. And then that's a weird moment, isn't it? Very strange. Surrounded by a bunch of people trying to talk her out of it. The other thing, just from a security standpoint, Taylor Swift comes out against Trump. I don't care if they write that. I'm sad that I didn't two years ago, but I can't change that. I'm saying right now that this is something that I know is right. And you guys, I need to be on the right side of history. And if he doesn't win, that at least I, I, at least I tried. A bunch of old white men trying to talk her out of it by referencing Bob Hope, which is just baffles me to this day. But Taylor has a lot of power and is very smart and controls her own career in a lot of ways. So I don't think that we can take her take her out of those decisions. No, but it, it does completely. You do see there was some pressure being put on her the other way. You can see Absolutely. what she was grappling with. Absolutely. But then the second part of it, and I think that's that's the more important part of it, but there was also just this, it was so muddy who she was fighting against and what she was fighting against. And it kind of just all the celebrity stuff, all the Kim and Kanye stuff, like it it all got just poured into this bucket of Taylor Swift is mad and angry, but it might just be about herself. Yeah, and so we're in this pool of battles, some of which are imagined, some of which are petty, and some of which are really, really important. Right, and I think the the sexual assault trial and some of her engagement in artist rights were really important, but some of the other stuff was less important and the darkness in general of that period and what it was like for her, it did for better and for worse, make this a really complicated, thorny album. And I like some of the, the top half of reputation songs a lot as, as we're talking about, but it's hard to deny that I can sit here and think about how meaningful it was to read her 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 testimony from that trial and then not juxtapose that with just feeling like, okay, do you really care about Kim and Kanye this much? Like they're always involved in drama. Does this re- like seriously, are we really going to keep doing this? Because some of those songs, it wasn't just the fact that she was doing it in public as a as a celebrity and that that was part of the narrative, some of those songs, just to to borrow a phrase, they are exhausting. Exhausting. That's exactly it. And the first half of this album is exhausting 
And it muddles the brilliance of the back half for me, at least it did in the first six months that I was listening. Today, I look back on it with love and affection. So let's talk about track five then, because track five is delicate. And this, Taylor has said, this is the first moment of vulnerability on the album. And it doesn't fully because this album isn't sequenced in that side A, side B way perfectly as you described. It doesn't fully stick with that from there on out completely. But this is where we meet Joe. Dive bar on the east side. Right. I love this song very much. And my favorite thing about it is that is it cool that I said all that is such a meta Taylor line. Like she is, when I hear her sing that, I see Denzel walking away from the fiery explosion. (laughs) Is it cool that I said all that? Is it chill that you're in my head? All the things that Taylor Swift has said over the course of X years, like, I don't know. I guess it's cool, Tay. We're still listening. Yeah. This song deserves to be mashed up with Lost in Japan by Sean Mendez. Whoa. Do you got plans tonight? I'm a couple hundred miles from Japan and I, I was thinking I could fly to your hotel tonight. Uh, I'd listen to that. Well, you check my SoundCloud, girl. No, but this is a beautiful song. It has only one blemish for me. And it's the like super high pitched delicate, like that comes in at the beginning of that first chorus that I can't, I just can't get through. But I, I put on the blinders and power through. This is a beautiful, beautiful song. It is one of my favorite Taylor Swift songs. Sorry, the little like reception desk bell that they ring before the first chorus in Gorgeous doesn't bother you, but this does. Well, I, what, because I know that. Look, what I like about the start of Gorgeous is it's an introduction to James Reynolds, Blake and Ryan Reynolds' kid. That's her voice sampled on that song. Gorgeous. That is so cute. I can get through all of that. But on this one, just like, yes, this song is delicate. It is so vulnerable. And that little moment of delicate, it's like, what? It's like the little Dr. Pepper Prince characters <laughs> jumped into the song for five seconds and then retreated back into the television. It's like a grown-up. What I like about it, too, is that it's like, it's kind of a grown-up enchanted. I'm just ignoring your thing about the delicate because it doesn't bother me at all. And because I think if you if the gorgeous thing doesn't bother you, like, you, what are we even doing, Nathan? But you have, like, that thing that we both love from Enchanted where you have the layers of anxiety and excitement being represented in the music and they just swirl around each other and pile on top of each other by the end of it. Like this does that too. Yeah. But tonally it's just so much less like sparkly fairy tale and it's dive bar on the East side. And I just, it's a great song. And the vocals, one of my favorite songs. I know. And the vocals are delicate. Like the vocoder, like all of it is just, Oh, and when we talk about this album and when we grade it, I want everyone to remember, I love this song, <laughs> but I think it feels out of place. This feels like she checked the box to say, I got to put a song that is lyrically deep and that has a bunch of meaning fifth. It 
feels out of place in the sequence of the album to me. I guess so. But I would have been sad if track five had been something big and bombastic. Like, I really like Did Something Bad. And I actually, yeah, I like Don't I Blame too. Me Too. Yeah, I do too. Um, I wouldn't have liked either one of those as track five. I don't want either one of those to be a track five. That vocal run that comes out of the bridge on Don't Blame Me is unlike just about anything we've ever heard from her. It sounds like an Ariana Grande, Beyonce, Carrie Underwood type vocal run. It's very dangerous woman. Right? Yeah, totally. And I love it. And I love that she goes for it. And I love that she has now very clearly turned her voice into an instrument. And she's playing a character. It also doesn't feel like her at the core. She's not Ariana Grande, Beyonce, or Carrie Underwood in the right. best way. Right. No, but she's putting on a she's putting on a hat. Yeah. When we say turned her voice into an instrument, let's let's spend a second more on that and then we'll move on. That is very literal on this album, right? You just mentioned yes. the vocoder, which basically splits what she's singing into a chord and yep. she can play her voice out and it adds to that layering effect. There's also on... King of My Heart. Well, what on King of My Heart? We hear all of the King of My Heart, like the whole chorus. She's doing that. And all I want to, I'm the one I've been waiting for King of My Heart Right. And then on I Did Something Bad, there's that sort of weird um, thing they do in the post-chorus. Yeah, exactly. You're doing it. I was scared to do that. Scared how it would come out on the mic. But that is her voice pitched down and just electronically manipulated into this cool thing. So her voice is an instrument in terms of like she's just learned how to use it super effectively in phrasing and in these little accents. Yeah. But they are also literally turning it into an instrument on this record, which I think is so cool. It's one of the things that I think she learned from Max Martin and Shellback that she's now going to take into the Jack Antonoff era. And I'm sure Jack works with her in all kinds of ways. But she learned or grew the muscle to turn her voice into an instrument that doesn't just sound great, but she uses her voice to accent tracks in places that you normally would hear traditional sort of hand-played instruments. It becomes a signature of her music from here. This is one reason why I love hearing the hip-hop inflections on this album, because Max's calling card always had a lot to do with, um, I think he calls it like musical math. And the idea is that to make a, a hooky, catchy song, one thing you really got to do is you have to match the lyrics to the cadence and the rhythm of the melody. And you do that part first, and then you put the lyrics in after. But what Taylor's so good at is almost speaking lyrically, but then singing very conversationally. Hmm. And... That's a great it way makes it. it a more natural fit for her to be doing some of this hip hop influenced stuff. Yeah, because she's actually she's she even when she's singing she's speaking. 
Yes. Is it cool that I said all that? Yes. There's more flow to it than in some Max songs, but it it maintains that core structure that helps you remember it, helps you sing it, makes it catchy and makes it really, really good. But I think her flair on it comes through when she's just like dropping these little phrases that sound like something that somebody would whisper to you in the back of a dive bar or just say to you when you're talking on the street or, or whatever it is. And that combination, I think, really, really comes through here and is a cool thing. That's right. And when you fast forward to Folklore and Evermore, you're going to hear her sing rhythmically over nine, eight time signatures, which is a sort of extreme example of this skill that she has. She is a great rhythmic singer. Can I rant for a sec? Uh, yes, please, Nora. You know I love when you do. Pay apps are way too public. Uh-oh. What happened? Okay, so some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history who I'm paying. Full names, it's super weird. Yeah, it is super weird. Well, how are you going to pay your friends then? I'm asking for a friend. Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? Services are provided by Green Dot Bank, member FDIC, terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. So we were just talking about Max. But I think this is where I need to give Jack Antonoff I mean, his due thank as God her for most Jack. important collaborator. Yeah, Thank God for because Jack. Because Jack brings us out of the darkness with Taylor. Except for look what you made me do. That, that's Which like, I like. But the, again, it, we can have that debate. We had that debate. I'm just going to say, I do think he pulls her out just as she got to the edge of what was possible with some of her early collaboration with Nathan Chapman somewhere on this album you said it exhausting it feels a little exhausting and we're sort of ready to move past Max Martin thank you Max for the ride you got us a long way we appreciate that but it's time for us to step out of the bus and get on the jack bus we're on the jack bus now so and the jack bus makes it stops at look what you made me do first but then Getaway Car and the last four tracks on the album, Dress, This Is Why We Can't Have Nice Things, Call It What You Want, and New Year's Day. So there's a little bit of the aggressive, angry, campy, whatever, 
but then also some of the most beautiful, pure, excellent vehicles for songwriting songs that we get here and some of my absolute favorites. So this is Jack's moment. Step into the spotlight, Jack. Let's go. Thank you for it, Jack. Thank you. You you really helped this album become what it ends up being. And by the way, I think that was cathartic for her probably on a personal level. I've, I've read interviews of hers where she's talked about kind of needing to remember the joy of creation and having that experience pull her out of this really dark chapter in her life. And she did the songs with Jack later in the process. And I yeah. think that is reflected in the sound of it. There's something really safe about working with him because he works out of a home studio in a lot of cases and it's just the two of them and they clearly built up, you know, just like she did with Liz Rose, the way that she did with Nathan Chapman and obviously what she did with Max Martin and Shellback. We've seen some of the video from her interactions with Max and Shellback. She can get in a room, close the doors, you know, at the soundboard and just feel safe sharing what's in her head and turning that over to another to work with that clay and edit it and get to something that she's happy with. So it's so rare for somebody to feel this comfortable with multiple people in the way that she has, but it is it is what keeps inspiring and pushing the limits of her creativity. And Jack is able to draw out some of the best of just classic things that Taylor has always done while spinning her forward in that way. But she does contradict this at one point when she says that the old Taylor can't come to the phone right now because she's dead. I'm sorry. The old Taylor can't come to the phone right now. Why? Oh, because she's dead. Which brings me to my most purposeful Easter egg from this era, which is the tombstone next to the side of the grave that she digs herself in the Look What You Made Me Do music video. Do you know whose name is inscribed on that tombstone? I do. It is a Swedish name that I have no idea how to pronounce. I know it's Niles Soberg. Yeah. That's, yeah, uh, Nils, Niles, Nils, Soberg. I think that's right. There's that's what J, I was going to go There's with. a bunch of silent Js. I don't know. We need some Swedes and, or Norwegians to tell us, but. Yeah. <laughs> we asked on the Speak Now pod if anybody had a, a vial of her perfume Wonderstruck. So on this one, the ask is just for a Swedish person to tell me how to say Nils, Soberg or whatever it is. But yeah. that is the pseudonym that she used when she co-wrote This Is What You Came For for Rihanna with Calvin Harris. Who she'd been dating and who was part of the negativity that defined the year prior to Reputation coming out for her. And that was in part because After they'd broken up, there was some reporting. It came out in TMZ, one, that Nils was a pseudonym. Yeah. And that Taylor had co-written that song. And it was kind of implied that they'd maybe broken up because he'd said in an interview after the fact that they would probably not ever work together or hadn't talked about it. And either she was upset about that or he was sort of threatened by 
how good she is at writing songs. Yeah, somebody's um, somebody's man card was was threatened by the fact that Taylor is way better at writing songs. Yeah. And so the fact that as Weak. she's burying burying her old self and that music video is just so fun because she has all the old Taylors, right? She has the You Belong With Me Taylor. She has the Wildest Dreams Taylor. She has like all of her famous old costumes from the past and they're all making jokes about why do you look so surprised all the time? And you're just playing the victim and it's all very aware of the, the greater narrative, which Taylor always is. Yeah. Um, but that's my favorite. What's yours? Uh, they, you can't do better than that. So, uh, I mean, I think Dive Bar on the East Side is that sort of intro to Joe. We're going to hear about that bar again in albums to come. But it's it, that's the one, undeniably. But what I want to know from you, Nora, is what songs are you going to cut? And I just want to be clear with everybody. This is not, it's like going to this, the Saturday Night Live sketch, which was like, you go to a buffet and it's not all you want to eat. It's all you can eat. In this case, like you have to cut a song. Like we are putting a gun to your head and saying, you must cut at least one song. What are you going to do? This doesn't necessarily mean we would. Like, I don't think you would cut Speak Now from Speak Now, but I was forcing you to make that choice. What song would you cut from your reputation? So we already talked about it. I really don't super need Gorgeous. It just what? doesn't do a whole lot for me. Come on, man. I nothing, know. Nothing in the first half of the album goes for you? Uh, I would part with Endgame. You're damn right you would shoot that thing into the sun on a giant Elon Not Musk that rocket. Bad. I know, but I just like if we're gonna make some choices, gorgeous really puts you off that way. Come on, throw the darts at it then. Really help me understand what's bad about it. So the only thing that I think is really bad about it is face with face. She does not convince me that she is in on the joke of rhyming face with face. And there's nothing about the melody that gets stuck in my head. And oh, that okay. little reception desk bell going ding just it's it drives me up the wall. Wow. The cat's line is funny. Guess I'll just stumble on home to my cats. <laughs> Alone. I mean it is. She's cat lady in it. I I love that song. That is a big source of disagreement between us in the Taylor Swift universe, and that's okay. I've been very overt about the songs that I would cut. It's look what you made me do, and it's endgame. But I, I keep them if we resequence the album and turn it into A, B, Dark Light, Fall Rise, Growl, Grace, however you want to call it. And by the way, those are my suggestions for an album title. Are you happy with Reputation? She loved Reputation. Yeah, I never really wish they were actually something different, but my what ifs for it are, okay, maybe you call it Getaway Car. Yep. Maybe that flips the tone of it a little bit to the emphasis should be on the back half where we get away and we zoom off into happiness. By the way, yes. one Easter egg, if you want to call it that, uh, yes. think about the place where you first met me, which was allegedly in this story, which can be read to be about Tom Hiddleston or it can be read to be about Joe. Yeah. It's probably a little bit more Hiddleswifty, but whatever. The Met Gala. Right. Met which I love. I love that. 
but Getaway Car is one. And then another one, Call It What You Want, could have been a funny album title. Very meta. Yeah, fair enough. You don't like it? I, I do. I, 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 she got hung up on the phrase, there will be no explanation, there will just be reputation. And so we never were going to be able to convince her otherwise. That, that became the whole motif for the record, right? Right. And she, you know, it's funny. She's used the word reputation in songs before. So it's kind of, it's always fun when stuff comes back around. I mean, we're still hearing about the dress and I think that's really wonderful. So I'm cool with the album title and I'm, I'm also cool with the, you know, special promo album bundle, fake magazine cover that says who's Meredith's real father, her cat. Yeah. Like I, I liked playing into the sort of, the, yeah, the meet the press narrative of it she, all. She's playing a character. Um, what'd you find on the internet? <laughs> oh, boy. So, the day that Taylor released that the 10 second snake video after clearing all her socials, yes, um, it was also the day of a solar eclipse. Oh, which at first, shit. you remember this? Well, I wrote, I just remembered I wrote a piece with Bill called The Taylor Eclipse. That talked about oh her being, gosh. yes, that talked about her being like the greatest CMO in the world. And you're, ugh, I completely forgot. Keep going. Did you write that piece before or after Reputation? As a part of it, like the, right before the album came out, but when she turned her social channels dark. Okay. Well, she ended up out trending the eclipse because at first people really? started speculating that, like, what's going on? What's Taylor doing? Does this have something to do with the eclipse? Is she going to put music out in conjunction with the eclipse? Like, is that what's going on? And then it got so blown out of proportion that more people were talking about Taylor on the internet than this astrological event, which is very fitting. It was in keeping with an absolute genius marketing you know, series of marketing decisions that she's made through the course of her career. It, it got everybody talking. She did not want to do any press and she didn't need to, you know? Here's what I wrote. I just pulled it up on the internet. Okay, go. The light shifted and reframed our perspective, reminding us that something greater lies above. That's right. Taylor Swift began her comeback. Man. Wow. That sucks. What a sentence. Anyway. Uh, one more. So, and this is actually very fitting because there's kind of two sides to this and one is very funny and silly and the other one is kind of the dark underbelly of being a celebrity. But the summer before Reputation comes out is this very trying summer for her. It was also the summer where the internet became convinced that she was being transported to and from her apartment inside of a suitcase. Oh, God. Thank you for remembering this. Yes. What, like, are there Vegas odds? We can, was she in the suitcase? So, I guess I think yes. I think yes. Because why would you... I mean, there are so many people trying to figure out where she is at any given time. <laughs> the suitcase. You gotta try something. Thank the only thing is it looks cramped. Like, this this woman is five foot eleven. Oh, it's horrible. It's like a Vegas magic trick, but she's trying to get out of the house without being seen. Yeah, being a celebrity is a little nuts. Well, and... You know, we know from the doc, she's not really happy. To, she doesn't want to be seen right now. She, she's not. Right. She's taken a whole lot of heat. From the beginning, this woman has taken the pulse of her fans by scouring the depths and corners of the internet to learn them and learn everything about them. And 
what we always used to say at Twitter is the great thing about the internet is that it gives every single person a voice. And the horrible thing about the internet is that it gives every single person a voice. And she hears all those voices and the cacophony of negativity that had come her way in 2016 was overwhelming. I would have wanted to be transported in and out. And by the way, she's 5'11". It's hard to fit in a suitcase. Yeah. They were big suitcases, though. They were big suitcases. But like, we've never seen her travel with that before. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I it's like, it reminds me of when Theo slipped out of the office of the Red Sox in a gorilla costume, right? It's the same thing. <laughs> That's a good reference. <laughs> I didn't expect that one from you. You're welcome. Wow. Um, but what she did figure out how to do with the internet is use it to, like you said, in, in place of doing press, the benefit of it is that she could communicate with her fans directly. She didn't need an intermediary. And she did take advantage of that in the rollout of this album for, you know, for better or for worse in some points. And by the time she gets to love her, she's back in a place where she's interested in in doing profiles and sit downs and interviews and, and whatever. But she did at least have some means of talking to people, but controlling the message, which felt important at the time. Um, I'm so excited to get to our next category. Yes. I just have to to move us along Let's because go. we have had we have had the Tom Middleton Award for showing the work this entire podcast, and now we get to give it to the man himself. It's Hiddle Swift. It is Hiddle Swift in a white I Heart TS T-shirt. I don't know why this guy still gets hired in Hollywood, but Taylor Lautner doesn't. It's just one of the most unbelievable things. So set the table. She's she's now got the house in Rhode Island. She's out yeah, on yeah, the Kennedy compound. She's got the house in Nathan, Rhode Island. Go. Nathan, I got this. I know you do. So she'd been dating Calvin Harris until June of 2016-ish. And they break up and there's all the stuff about this is what you came for. Rihanna, by the way, completely not a part of this, emerges completely unscathed, probably mildly buzzed on a yacht the entire time, as she should be. But there's all that drama. By the end of that same month, Taylor and Tom Hiddleston are in a very public, like, whirlwind romance where British tabloids have somehow shown up on the beach in Rhode Island to take photos of them making out, which inspired a headline in The Sun that was, Tinker Taylor snogs a spy. (laughs) Tom Hiddleston goes to her 4th of July bash and is photographed wearing the I Heart TS tank top. All of this leads to a lot of speculation that this is a fake relationship for the cameras. I, I don't even care. What I know is fake is Tom's explanation of why he was wearing that shirt. Which is what? He got asked about it in an interview and he said that he had slipped and hurt his back And he wanted to protect whatever mark he had from the sun. So he asked to borrow a shirt from one of Taylor's friends. And that's what they had. To which I call bullshit to you, good sir. (laughs) Yeah, Loki. That's Loki weak ass explanation for what you were actually doing. It's an all time paparazzi moment. Totally. I don't understand how it I don't understand how it didn't destroy the career, but it definitely I think 
shook them out of whatever gleeful state they were in and 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 it killed the relationship it must have it had to well and it it makes calvin harris like unfollow her on on instagram which is very funny what for you across this album and this era is peak taylor well this is the album uh Taylor, peak Taylor often comes from a place of when she decides she likes something and is into something, she is all the way in. And this is kind of the album where Taylor becomes an aggressive booze hound. There's a lot of drinking on this album. (laughs) She's doing a lot of drinking. I'm spilling wine in the bathtub. You kiss my face and we're both drunk. Up on the roof with a schoolgirl crash. Drinking beer out of plastic. I knew it from the first old fashioned we were cursed. She's, I mean, she's, she's talking about drugs as well, but I don't think she's doing, she's, she's sort of using love as a metaphor, but there's a lot of drinking on this album. Yeah. So nine songs reference drinking or bars. Five have the actual drinks. We have whiskey on ice from Gorgeous. We have an old fashioned and getaway car. We have beer out of plastic cups and King of My Heart. There's wine spilling in the bathtub on dress. By the way, this is like a sex and drinking album. It really is. is. Something that we need to There's acknowledge. Baby reputation. making music. If you edit out a few songs, this is a yes. I'm clutching my pearls. Um, and then there's the champagne sea on, on this is why we can't have nice things. So well, what about all the bottles on the floor? Of New Year's Day. Yeah, I well, so no I, I count drink. that in the... I Yeah, that's not a drink. Yeah, right. Because you assume they're bottles of champagne, it was New Year's, but we don't really know. Okay. That's some pretty good analysis. I don't have a better peak, Taylor. I just... I, I think that the coolest... For as much as I have talked about my displeasure upon my initial hearing of the first half of the album, the little cough she does on the intro as it comes in to ready for it, where she clears her throat before laying down that track is mm-hmm. cool as hell. That's the here I come. It's like she's, it's almost like a boxer, like warming up, you know, pulling back for a knockout punch. It's just this, <clears throat> I love it. What about the, I can't even say it with a straight face. <laughs> can't even say it with a straight face. This is why we can't have nice. Yeah, that's a... Listen, she tried... We talked about this, and what you're speaking to is on... This is why we can't have nice things. As she says, because forgiveness is a nice thing to do. And then we get that, like, hard, (laughs) aggressive laugh. And I can't even say it with a straight face. And who can blame her? I mean, at this point, she's tried it. She tried to go the high road. We talked about this on Innocent it, from Speak Now. And, you know, it didn't work. And so Michelle Obama is usually right. When they go low, we go high. In this case, like, she just couldn't handle it anymore. And so why not? Throw it down. What's interesting about that song for me is right then, after that song, the curtain falls, the costume comes off, and we get moved into what is my belatedly best song from the album, which is Call It What You Want. All my flowers grew back as thorns Windows boarded up after the storm He built a fire just to keep me warm It's mine too. Yeah, and and to me, it's just this beautiful sister of Delicate 
you hear that song and I go, oh my God, she's in love. Taylor, it's like Happy Learned How to Putt in Happy Gilmore. It's like, oh God. <laughs> Taylor Swift understands what it means to be in a deep, meaningful, maintain your independence, but have interdependencies that are healthy, kind of loving relationship. Holy shit, this was the last piece of the puzzle. Where are we going from here? Like, she is deeply in love and you can hear it on that song. I'm like, who is this person? She found Joe. And it comes at a time when all these other men who she had dated, you just can't help but wonder if one piece of why they were attracted to Taylor Swift is because they were going to be photographed on a fucking slip and slide in a shirt that said, I heart Taylor Swift in some capacity, you know, metaphorically speaking or literally. And this man who she has met and has started being with is the opposite. He wasn't even at the Grammys. He's shying away from that spotlight. You know, as she said, you must like me for me. And that is a powerful, powerful image and a missing piece for a person who has spent, uh, at this point, most people's career writing about that hole in her heart that it sounds like is filled. And that's what we're going to get over the next couple albums. The intro to Call It What You Want sounds like a sunrise to me. It, it just, something's blooming and glowing and wonderful and beautiful. And it has such a current sound to it in the rhythmic cadence of it, but the classic Taylor in just how conversational the delivery is, the details about pillow forts and the 8th of November. And it, it's so, it, it's like something old, something new, right? We are completely in sync on this one. It reminded me of when my shitty band would play the bitter end in New York City and we'd go out till all hours of the morning. And sometimes in the summer, Stop you'd calling get those, your band shitty. We, we, we'd get the rain at night and we'd stay out until sunrise and sort of walking those belatedly wet streets of New York as the sun is coming up, just sort of quietly going back. That's the exact vibe that this song gives off. It's just absolutely beautiful. It's one of my all-time favorite Taylor Swift songs. I but love it, it is like not... It is not the source of the single best lyric on this album. What is the single best lyric on this album, Nora? Well, I disagree with the uh, the premise of your setup, but I like All the Liars Are Calling Me One. Nobody's uh, heard from me for months. I'm doing better than I ever was. Yeah. Okay. So it is from Call It What You Want. Yeah. I had an inkling to go with that, but I just can't get over what you said earlier, which is nothing good starts in a getaway car. No, nothing good starts in a getaway car. It's just <laughs> so great. It's, it's everything about her turn of a phrase, her humor, the like fact that she sometimes gets herself into trouble and she's self-aware enough to know it. I just love it. It's my favorite lyric on the album. Getaway Car, by the way, is my next album appetizer because she and by the end of this thing, like, yes, she's in love and she's very fulfilled. Also, she wants to make some pop songs with Jack Antonoff. Yes. And they are going to fucking do it. And it's going to be terrific. Nora, 
it's time. It's time for your favorite part of every single album, Taylor Swift. The part that you look forward to when we always do this. this I literally hate this part. I know you hate this part. And I'm going to make you give this thing a grade. Actually, before we do that, just because I know we're going to hear about it, I just have to ask you, is New Year's Day a good song? Yes. Don't read the last page, but I stay when you're lost and I'm scared and you're turning away. By the way, if I had to choose another lyric, it's almost cliche, but Taylor's actually really good at playing with cliches and, and tropes like this. Don't read the last page, but I stay is another lyric that like really gets me in the feels. It does. Okay. It is not your next album appetizer, though. It doesn't tell you anything about Lover. This feels like that sort of quiet show closing, like she needs this for the arena rock slowdown moment or? No, I I think uh, Call It What You Want is more of, does more of that because she uses the word lover. Okay. Fair enough. It, it, It becomes an integral part of her show. She plays it along with Don't Blame Me. She played on Saturday Night Live, right? Yep. I'm laughing with my love and making boards in the covers just like a brother. Yeah, you know I did one thing right. Starry eyes sparking up my darkest night. So it, it really became something that a lot of the core fan base fell in love with. I wonder if it was like that life raft on the album that they grabbed onto because some of the stuff at the beginning of the record was harder to attach to. Yeah, because they had this in New Year's Day. And and didn't they give New Year's Day to, to country radio too? Like they're still doing that? Yeah, yeah. They're still so they're still trying to be like, hey, we, we got something for you here. Play it up. For you, Bone. Yeah, uh, this is a country song for sure. She's talking about drinking and uh, it doesn't have dubstep. So it's a country song. <laughs> What do you grade it? All right, fine, fine. I fine. have no life raft. Enough. Yeah, I have no life raft for you. You must grade this. A minus. What? Like, like an A minus slash B plus. What? I'm not willing to give her anything purely that starts with a B. It's just not going to happen. I love this album. It's weird, but yeah. I love it. Yeah, my, I, I have to say, my 14-year-old, daughter adores this album yes she that's how you know you're raising him right yeah and she and she she plays it front to back the skips for her are look what you made me do and the skips for her are end game but she's not even offended by that there is a there's a significant part of the taylor verse that thinks this is their favorite album i think that this album should have done better I'm going to give it a B plus, but I think that there are some of the songs from this record are A plus. And I'm just mad that this album didn't get more that it deserved because of the collection of of some of the songs that are on here. To your point, like the whole like the like sexiness of it got subsumed by the conversation about this is why we can't have nice things and and look what you made me do. And the single choice, I think still, even in this era of people being able to discover things on their own and stream and all that, the single choice submarined the back half of Reputation, which is some of my favorite music she's ever made. And so I'm mad about it because I wish that it was more widely accepted is great. 
and I'm giving it a B plus as an album, even though there are two songs on here in particular, Getaway Car and Call It What You Want, that I think are A plus. And I think on my list of top, I know on my list of top 10 Taylor songs, maybe in my top five. All right. Well, we have emerged from the darkness and the wreckage on a few this snake podcast, bites. I think. Maybe more than a few. But are you ready to go to Lover on the next one? I am ready for Lover. I'm ready for Multicolors. I'm ready to have a very interesting debate over how we're going to grade Lover. I can't wait. This has been Every Single Album, Taylor Swift. For Nathan Hubbard, I'm Nora Princiati. Join us on Monday when we talk about Taylor Swift's seventh album, Lover. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.